Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to Chatter in the Skull. This week, it's going to be a smorgasbord. We're coming up on the holidays, less news going on, less stuff going on. So it's going to give me some opportunities to catch up, talk about a bunch of different random things that I've been waiting for. And of course, we are going to wrap up our last segment on Verbal Judo. Before I get into it, I have installed some new lights in the studio. I'm hoping this will make the green screen work a little bit better, get a little bit less of that fuzzy crap around the edges or whatever, and overall look more professional. Although it does feel like I'm staring into the sun right now and my retinas are burning, so I might have to adjust that as time goes on. So what do I got on tap for you guys today? We're gonna to talk about the Cinema Stab which happened the day I released my last episode. Wouldn't you know what? I always have crappy timing like that. I also want to talk a little bit about why Mexican-Americans are moving more towards the right end of the political spectrum. I had a comment about that from a viewer and I thought it would be interesting to, rather than just respond to the comment individually, have a broader kind of conversation about this because it's worth having a broader conversation about, I think. Then I want to talk a little bit about Elon Musk's clownish descent into Twitter madness, which has been happening for a long time, but we just had something really, I think, amplified, that really amplifies the entire hypocrisy of his venture. And we may end on something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, but we'll see how long these other segments take because don't have as much time today as I usually do, so it's probably going to be a shorter episode. Without further ado, let us jump into the Cinema Stab, which is, of course, our first topic of conversation for the day. You can already see that that lighting is definitely helping out a bit in terms of the green screen, but I'm still going to switch this over to the dark mode, the, <laughs> the dark theme. Even though I'm wearing a black t-shirt today, it looks like I'm a disembodied head with arms, but unfortunately, this is the only shirt that I had to wear today. Great, now we got dark mode enabled. It took way longer than I thought it was going to. I have to sign up for a Wikipedia account to enable dark mode. Did not know that, and I did not have a Wikipedia account prior to this. So anyway, who is Kirsten Cinema? in case you're unfamiliar? She was a Democratic senator from Arizona. She's known for being quite controversial because she likes to be in a sort of a maverick, quote-unquote, identity where she will eschew the traditions of her party to, quote-unquote, vote her conscience but in reality this woman takes more money from corporate lobbyists from big pharma than just about anybody else in the senate and when it comes to voting her conscience it always ends up being a vote that screws over the working class in some way or another so yeah she's always been controversial she's always been disliked or not always but in the past two or three years she's become more and more disliked by the democratic base which elected her and then, of course, she also has a notorious habit of being very difficult to contact and not meeting with her constituents. I remember back in the day, <laughs> I don't know how long ago this was, two years ago now, I guess, probably, where they had that incident where some of her constituents were trying to talk to her and she, like, ran into the bathroom. And then the people, like, followed her into the bathroom. And they're like, some people are like, how dare you? How dare you? And... I initially actually was one of those people because I thought, like, that's unnecessary. And I did some research and I found out that this fucking woman almost never meets with anybody. That these people have been trying for months and months and months and months and months to get a meeting with her. For her to do her goddamn job and she wouldn't do it. So these people get desperate. They do basically whatever they need to do to try and actually be heard by their elected representative. And of course, eventually she got tired of listening to her constituents and she decided, eh, 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 I'm going to sit as independent. So when I first heard that this was happening and that she was switching her party affiliation, I got very concerned. And the main reason I was concerned is, is she going to continue to caucus with Democrats? Because if she doesn't, then that will have some implications for how the Democrats run the Senate. The main thing being is that they would have to continue to split committees with the Republicans 50-50. They would still be in control, but it would just be like it used to be a little bit more difficult to get legislation through. However, from what we have known and what she has said and what people have been saying, and of course this has been reflected in Wikipedia where she says she is one of the three independents in the Senate, the others being Bernie Sanders and Angus King, both of whom who caucus with Democrats. It looks like she will continue to caucus with Democrats. However, her voting record before she even became independent was basically a 50-50 split. Like half the time 
should vote for the Democrats half the time, should vote for the Republicans. So not exactly the most uh, reliable person. Regardless, though, it looks like that the Democrats will still effectively have the uh, 51 seats to run the Senate that it looked like they were going to after the midterms. The main reason people have been floating around for this particular move, and I think that this is a very plausible and very probable, which is that she effectively left the Democratic Party to sit as an independent to skip the primaries. She's up for re-election in 2024. So if she sits as an independent, she basically just moves to the general election. If she were to continue to be a Democrat, there's a very high likelihood that she would be replaced by another Democrat in a primary because the Democratic base hates her guts. So this, in turn, sets up an interesting scenario where you have possibility that if Kristen Cinema decides to run in 2024, which she has not expressly said, there is a possibility that she just decides, F this, I'm going to go take some corporate lobbyist job and make a ton of money and uh, leave the Senate. That's very possible that she does that. Also possible that she does run again in 2024 as an independent, and this does put the Democrats in a difficult position because they, I believe, they 100% should run a candidate against her. No questions asked, although it is very likely that this would split the vote and end up giving the Senate seat to a Republican. In my opinion, it is much more important to make sure that this kind of behavior is not rewarded, that this kind of behavior is not reinforced, and absolutely Democrats should run a candidate even if it ends up costing them the seat in 2024. And I'm not going to lie to you guys, I really hate politicians like this. I cannot stand people who claim that they are on the left and decide, you know what, I'm I'm basically going to shiv you in the back. Obviously, I have no respect or tolerance for that kind of attitude. Quite frankly, I would much rather be facing a Republican in that circumstance because I know that the Republican's my enemy. I know what they believe. And yes, I'm probably going to get punched in the face, but I'd rather get punched in the face by somebody when, you know, I'm actually prepared to fight and expecting them to fight me and to try and punch me in the face rather than with Kirsten Cinema, her saying, you know what, oh, I'm on your side, don't worry. I got your guys' back. And as soon as you turn around, she gives you a nice haymaker in the back of the head. But nah, man, she's got to go down. And quite frankly, I would rather be facing someone in the Senate who I know, again, is my political enemy. I know that we're going to fight rather than someone who pretends to be on my side but actually isn't. And I think some people would definitely disagree with me on that on the left. But at the same time, you can't have weasels like this in, in your political movement. You just can't. You can't tolerate it. So here's to Kirsten Cinema. I hope you get crushed in 2024. Every time I say her name, I think of that. I can't remember who sings that song. It's like an old song. It's like, you are my cinema, my corporate treasure. You are taking money forever. All right, so let's move on to our next segment. This is coming from a comment brought to us by the Prince Elector 745. He says, one more thing, comrade. What are your thoughts on the steadily increasing numbers of Latino slash Latina voters going Republican in recent years? What do you think that can mean for the near and far future, considering how many are fleeing, fleeing socialist countries like Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba? So I think this is a really interesting political dynamic that I want to talk about and I've been wanting to talk about for a while. And this is the perfect opportunity to bring it up. There's no question in many circumstances, Latinos are moving towards the right. And specifically, like, there's no question that the, the Latinos in, the, in Florida, in the Cuban exile community, are and always have been more right wing than most Latino people. And this is definitely a direct result of the fact that they're exiled from their home country, they're not a fan of the Cuban government, and this, of course, drives them towards a right-wing party like the Republicans who vow to continue the Cuban embargo and uh, go from there. But when it comes to Latin Americans from other countries, and I think that this is specifically the rightward shift is coming from Mexican Americans, not Latino immigrants from other Central American countries or South American countries, and I think the reason why that's happening is, is very, very interesting. So let's bring up the browser here. Of course, we have, sorry guys, my Spanish pronunciation is awful, so bear with me. We have Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is the current president of Mexico. I don't know if you guys remember the 2018 election. It was a big deal because this guy was basically heralded 
as the Bernie Sanders of Mexico, which is true, but not true because the coalition he actually leads is a very interesting political coalition, something we don't really see in countries like America, Canada, Western European countries, and so on, which is he headed up a political coalition called the Juntos Hermanos Historia, which is a merger of the Labour Party, the Mexican Labour Party, and the right-wing social encounter party, specifically the socially conservative right-wing social encounter party. So when we look at our uh, Together We Will Make History coalition, we can see that its ideology is based off socialism of the 21st century, social democracy, left-wing nationalism, cardism, reformism, and social conservatism. So that's very different from what we see in our political coalitions. Generally speaking, we will have social conservatives will not join with uh, economic people who are economically left. It's very, very rare, but not so much in Latin American countries. So one of the things that is very important to note is that a lot of these countries in Central and South America have recently elected left-wing candidates and left-wing people. Of course, we just went over uh, the 2018 election in Mexico. We had the recent election in Colombia, where for the first time ever, that country elected a socialist into the presidential role. And of course, we just covered the election in Brazil, where the far-right president, Bolsonaro, was turfed in favor of Lula, of course, a left-wing candidate. That being said, though, if you are leaving the country because of a change in government, and if it's a left-wing government, it stands to reason that you yourself would be a more right-wing person who is not satisfied with the direction your country is moving, so you're going to find another one. And if you're a right-wing person, America is your best bet because... Americans tend to lean more right than just about, I would say in terms of Western countries, they're the most right-leaning population out there. And honestly, it's not really that close. So what exactly is happening then, in my opinion? To me, it's more of a, a demographic change in mentality is what we're seeing. So I just got the map here, looking at beautiful Mexico and the Southwestern United States. So what I think is happening is that Mexican-Americans are less and less seeing themselves as Mexican-Americans and more as American-Mexicans. And this is because not only does the United States government have a very large vested interest in keeping close ties with Mexico and extending those ties as we've moved forward in time and the boomers have stopped having as much political sway, this kind of xenophobic attitude towards Mexicans is diminishing greatly because that was the vestiges of the boomer age. Like they were really taught as kids, like Mexicans are the other, they're bad, they're bad. And now that they're slowly but surely going away, this attitude is going away with them. And the American people at large are embracing Mexican-Americans more. And in return, Mexican-Americans are embracing them as well. And this happens to make them more culturally American. And more culturally American you are, generally speaking, you become more right-wing. And it's very interesting that even among the, the attitude among Mexicans is definitely changing, where they see themselves closer to Americans, and they start to see these people from Guatemala, Honduras, Venezuela, Colombia, these other Central and South Americans, more as the other, quote-unquote. So Mexicans are no longer viewed as the other people coming in. Now it's more viewed as these Central and South Americans. And oddly enough, Mexicans are adopting that negative attitude towards these people. So I think as a whole, Mexicans are embracing their northern neighbors more and turning their backs on their southern neighbors more as a result. And there's a reason why these two, like America and Mexico, are going to become like the biggest power duo of the 21st century. The main reason is that the United States has a aging but very skilled population with lots of things to sell. Mexico has a very young population who's gaining in wealth and has lots of things they want to buy. So obviously, if you've got a lot of things you want to sell and you've got a big market right to the south of you that has a young population of people who are getting more money and want to spend that money, obviously that's a very good relationship for you to be in. And it's one that I think is going to be fostered more and more and more as we move into the 21st century. Mexicans are going to be seen more as Americans 
rather than Central Americans or Latinos or what have you. Like, think about it. When was the last time you heard anybody who wasn't a boomer or wasn't a goose-stepping alt-writer say anything negative towards Mexico? It's been a long time. And I've always thought it was weird, like, just as a random side tangent, I just want to look at this with you guys, which is, I've always wondered what the point of the wall really was, because I don't know if any of these people who are like big wall proponents have taken the time to look at Google Maps, and we'll take the time to look at Google Maps right now. But the reason is, is that the American and Mexican border is pretty much a natural wall. It is about the most sensible geographical boundary between two countries you could ask for, right? If you compare it to the North here between us and the United States, this border is completely arbitrary. There's absolutely no geographical markings really to delineate the border between the United States and Canada. You know, it's just a big straight line right over open plains, wide open plains. Sometimes you get these kind of borders that are based around lakes and whatnot. But yes, this is a very arbitrary border where let's look at the Mexican-American border, zoom in, and we can see like the there are very few crossing points. And these crossing points are already very heavily monitored by the United States Customs and Border Patrol. If we move for, move along here, the border is basically along the Rio Grande River. And as we can see, like this is some pretty rugged and rural territory. This is some not, this is not the kind of place you want to be trekking through. This is not the kind of place that you could easily cross. This is the kind of place that if you're actually hoping to cross from United States into Mexico, it is going to be quite an arduous and dangerous journey. Like, look at this area. Like, look at this. This is just complete and total desolate mountains with a little canyon and a river in between them. And this goes on the almost the entire length of the border, except for a few points where there are some natural crossings. And these are already heavily, heavily monitored and guarded by the United States Border Patrol. Of course, yeah, El Paso being one of those particular crossings, but moving over, it's just open desert between the Mexican and American border. No infrastructure, no food, no water, no transportation, no roads. My point being is that these borders are here for a reason and they're extremely difficult to cross as they are. So I have always found that kind of uh, worrying about, oh, the immigrants are coming. It's very, very unfounded. And honestly, like I said, that border is going to start, I think it's going to become more and more porous just because of the way that the economics of the United States and Mexico are going. They're going in more of an intertwined direction, and that's going to lead to more intertwined movement between the two countries regardless. So I don't think this rightward shift is coming as a backlash against leftist governments in other places. I think, again, it's more of a changing identity among Mexican-Americans and seeing themselves more as Americans and less as sort of Latin Americans. Just to end off this little segment, when it comes to my own personal feelings around immigration, I definitely consider myself to be pretty moderate on the issue. I'm not, and honestly, like, this is definitely something that is overblown by the right, this idea that there are so many, like, left-wing people out there that are just like, open the borders, let everybody in. Like, obviously, we have to have an understanding that you just can't let everybody who wants to move into your country move into your country. But at the same time, we need to have humanitarian criteria as to how we evaluate and admit immigrants into our countries, rather than this sort of economic criteria where you're like number crunching people and, and thinking, oh, is this guy going to be a benefit or is this guy going to be a detriment? No, there needs to be a humanitarian component when it comes to immigration, obviously in terms of things like people fleeing war, desolation, poverty, that kind of stuff. That component needs to be in your immigration system. But obviously, we're not at a point where we can just let everybody in. Maybe once we get to fusion energy, maybe once we get to these kind of like unlimited resource and utopian ideals, hopefully we get there. Then you can start letting more people in. But unfortunately, we are not at that point in our society. I hope you will get to that point. But right now, we just aren't there. And I'm getting on, on a lot of tangents. And I've always thought as a kind of person who wants to have 
a global superstructure or, or global government. As much as I want that to happen, I, I don't think that we are there yet as a species, that most people will stomach and tolerate such a governmental body. And the main reason, I think, is because before we can really move into a worldwide government, we need to have some sort of transportation revolution to the point where it becomes as easy for me to spend a weekend over in Beijing as it is for me to spend a weekend in Calgary. So until we get to the point where people can easily travel to other continents, I don't know what that would look like. Maybe we have some sort of like craft, aircraft that can skim the atmosphere and fly to other places in a couple hours or so, two or three hours, something like that. But all I'm saying is that in order for us to really be able to intertwine as a people and a species, we need to have some sort of transportation revolution so I can go over and see what's going on in China, see what's going on in Brazil, see what's going on in India in the same way in the same way I could travel and see what's going on in, in Calgary and of course vice versa. And I think that kind of exchange of people would just make it a lot easier for us to adopt a kind of worldwide government because it's very difficult for people to fathom people in India having a control over people in America when it's so far away and so difficult for us to imagine us going there and them coming here. In order for me to go visit India, gotta save up thousands and thousands of dollars, take time off work, of course, take an 18 hour flight, which is miserable. Obviously it's very, very difficult to travel right now, unless you happen to have a lot of money and have a lot of means. And until that changes, there's no way I think a world government could work. Let's end our current events segment by talking about Elon Musk and his constant downward spiral. Ever since he bought Twitter, things have been going worse and worse and worse for the guy. In fact, I just read the other day that Elon Musk is no longer considered the world's richest man. He's now the second richest man. And the main reason is the amount of money he's been hemorrhaging ever since he bought Twitter. So I personally do not use Twitter. I only use it occasionally like we did during the election midterms to try and get up-to-date information on something big that's happening. Most of the time though, I don't interact with Twitter, don't have an account on Twitter, certainly not going to use it now that Elon bought it, didn't use it before. So I didn't really have a dog in the fight and I was just more interested to see what the hell this guy was going to do, what he was actually going to do. Because one of the things about Elon Musk, and this is one thing that bothers me personally and Something that people should understand about the guy is he's very Trumpian in the sense that you can't believe anything that comes out of the guy's mouth. He talks a lot. He sells a lot of bullshit. And honestly, you can't trust anything he says until it actually happens. Case in point with being this whole Twitter thing is that he said he was going to buy it, put in the bid, tried to pull out the bid, and then... <laughs> forced to buy it anyway. So it's like, why, why do the whole song and dance there, guy? Just do it. Just go through what you said you were going to go through anyway. And in any case, with this guy, you always have to be wary of what he says. Never trust his words, just trust his actions. Once you do that, you will be a whole lot less stressed out when talking about or thinking about or dealing with Elon Musk. So what was the clownish behavior which prompted me to talk about this today after spending a little bit of time? No, not really talking about it, ignoring it. Let me tell you guys. So the clownish behavior in question today is, I guess this is yesterday actually, Elon Musk suspends a Twitter account which basically just publishes the information on where his private jet lands and where it goes. And essentially, this has been triggering Elon Musk for years now. Before he owned Twitter, he complained about this guy. If I'm not mistaken, he even offered to give him some money to stop doing this. And the guy's like, no, I'm, I'm gonna keep publishing where your private jet lands. And this is all culminated in this moment where the individual who publishes this information on Twitter was suspended. And not just him, his personal account was suspended as well, along with there are other various Twitter accounts which publish the flight data for private jets of other billionaires, such as Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, all those other goofballs that have way too much money than any human being needs. But what makes this particular instance so funny and, and just so hypocritically hilarious is that we have, this is a tweet quote from, Ray, from Rage like Nick Cage. He says, my commitment to free speech extends to not even banning the account following my plane 
even though this is a direct personal safety risk. Elon Musk, November 6th, 2022. And then the guy responds, wow, barely even one month. So, of course, we are not dealing with the free speech crusader that we all thought we were. We are dealing with a petulant billionaire who can block and suspend anyone he wants to and will essentially just block and suspend anyone he wants to without any justification or cause. And one of the things I haven't really talked about on the show yet is that I am a very big believer in free speech. I never really liked the idea of censoring or blocking anybody for whatever they say. Obviously, I've been around for a long time. I've seen how the press and companies will censor and try and destroy left-leaning people, particularly far left-leaning people, people who aren't under the establishment leftist orthodoxy like myself. They will definitely do anything they can to try and crush us, to try and censor us. Anybody who argues for the working class to overthrow and take control of society is essentially viciously censored, repressed, and crushed by whatever the power establishment happens to be. So even though you're coming after my political enemies, I hate the idea of giving these tools to a corporation or government where they can, of course, then turn around and use them on me once I will definitely say something that they don't like or agree with. But that being said, I remained highly skeptical up until Elon's buying of the platform that he would actually usher in this golden era of free speech or what have you. Clearly, he has not done that. Clearly, he is censoring people and banning them based on who he likes and who he doesn't like. So to all the free speech warriors out there, I suggest you find a new champion because Elon Musk is doing you dirty. Then, of course, all the Elon simps come out and say, of course, Elon said as much on his Twitter, but there is more to the story. So yeah, let's talk about that, Elon. Here he says, real-time posting of someone's location violates doxing policies, but delayed posting of locations is okay. Well, Elon, I don't really think there's anything more I can say here besides... As we can see, <laughs> Twitter itself added in a, a nice little reader's context blurb underneath this tweet that says, readers added context that they thought people might want to know, which says that publishing flight records is protected under the First Amendment, and then cites a 1979 court case stating as such. So, whoops, whoopsie doodles, looks like what he was doing was protected speech, and Elon decided that he would just crush it because he doesn't like it. Who would have thought, who would have thought that this guy would be a hypocritical piece of shit? Anyway, Elon, you're a clown. And just because a bunch of people jerk you off on Twitter doesn't mean that the general population likes you, as you saw recently when you tried to show your face at a Dave Chappelle show and everybody booed you mercilessly. And thankfully, I think more and more people are starting to wake up and smell the bullshit of Elon Musk. That is because he's been around for, what, 12 years, 13 years now, and has accomplished very little of what he said he would at this time. Well, 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 comrades, I'm actually able to catch a new story in time before an episode goes out. So I was finishing up with my recording and editing and getting everything ready for the show, sitting down with my family, having dinner, finish dinner, pull out my phone, see what's going on on the Discord, and bam! Turns out we're having a genuine twilight of large cutting implements happening on Twitter right now. It looks like Elon Musk is banning swaths of prominent journalists off the platform for zero reason whatsoever. In fact, he's, so far as we know, this is a developing story. No reason has been given by the chief executive of Twitter. Let's check out this article from the Rolling Stone. This published just over an hour ago. It reads, a slew of prominent journalists were suspended from Twitter on Thursday afternoon, adding on to an already controversial week of content moderation and decisions made by the new platform owner, Elon Musk. New York Times reporter Ryan Mack, The Washington Post's Drew Hartwell, Mashable's Matt Bender, not my boy Matt, 
my poor boy Matt. A CNN reporter Donnie O'Sullivan and The Intercept's Michael Lee, political commentator Keith Oberman, independent journalist Aaron Rupar were all removed from the platform in a late afternoon purge. The removed accounts shared a common thread of being critical of Musk and his management policy decisions following the October takeover of Twitter. I was banned on Tuesday night after sharing a screenshot from CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan moments after he was suspended. The screenshot was an official LAPD statement regarding the incident Elon Musk was tweeting about last night, which led to him suspending Elon Jet, which we covered in the show already, and its creator, Jack Sweeney, Binner told Rolling Stone. I did not share any location data as per Twitter's new, new terms, nor did I share any links to Elon Jet or any other location tracking accounts. I have been highly critical of Musk, but I never broke any of Twitter's listed policies. Also removed from Twitter was an account run by freelance journalist Tony Webster, who shared a mastodon that booted him from his account with no warning. My Twitter account has been suspended. He wrote a screenshot of his suspended account. I received no explanation. The slew of ban comes on the heels of a controversial decision by Musk to ban software developer Jack Sweeney, who created various Twitter accounts to track the flights of private jets and celebrity aircraft via Twitter accounts under his stewardship. In a retroactive change to Twitter's content moderation, Musk announced that any instances of posting real-time data location would be treated as a form of doxing. As a result, in as a result in the suspension of the account, Musk attempted to link Sweeney's flight data tracking the project to an incident which an individual following a car carrying his son. No evidence has come to light that that individual is motivated or gathered information from Sweeney's account. Nonetheless, Musk threatened legal action against him. As celebrities and everyday Twitter users say goodbye amid the drastic changes, Musk, who was reported affinity for booting accounts who annoy him is now a regular theme, suspended competitor Mastodon's Twitter account. This move is in a marked contrast to Musk's stance as a free speech absolutist who has frequently tweeted like-minded catchphrases such as sunlight is the best disinfectant and let's get some sunlight here, Elon. I would love some sunlight. And transparency is the key to trust, yet doesn't share the same beliefs when it comes to his own decisions of Twitter. Huh? Who would have ever imagined something like that? In April, the Twitter CEO memorably posted, I hope that my worst critics remain on Twitter because that's what free speech means. Okay. I'm sure you sure I'm sure you believe that, my friend. I'm sure you absolutely believe that. Moving on. The tweet was followed by further clarification, with Musk doubling down on his commitment to free speech. By free speech, I simply mean that which matches with the law. I'm against censorship that goes far beyond the law. If people want less free speech, they must ask the government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people. I definitely say he's going contrary to the will of the people here. After receiving media backlash for banning journalists on Thursday, Musk responded on a Twitter writing, Doxing me all day long is fine, but doxing my real-time location and endangering my family is not, which nobody has done. So anyway, that's the end of this story from the Rolling Stone. Before I move on, um, I gotta say the hypocrisy of this is hilarious to me. It's so hilarious. We talked about this in the last segment that you can't trust anything this guy says. When it comes to free speech, as soon as he's in the driver's seat, right in the trash, totally in the trash. So honestly, if you are still simping for Elon at this point, if you still believe that this guy is somehow a free speech crusader, I don't know what to say to you, man. You're just the, either you're the dumbest of dumb people or you are just totally hypocritical piece of shit. I don't know which one it is, but at this point, if you're still in Elon's camp, you gotta be one of those two people. So moving on to some of the things that we have as a result of this total clusterfuck. We've got a couple tweets here. One of the things that people are speculating as to the reason why Elon Musk has decided to do this purge is because we have this story that he says that someone followed him and stalked him from the airport, which is no question, absolutely terrifying. The issue is, is that holes are starting to appear in his story and people are speculating that as people are starting to poke holes in the story as people are gathering more information 
it may be that Elon Musk has not been entirely truthful about this entire situation. What we have here from Elon Higgins, and I don't like the way that he's phrased this at all, essentially what he says is that Bellingcat Discord member Puko has geolocated the video that Elon Musk posted overnight claiming to show a stalker, which used to justify the banning of accounts that tracked flights. It's at these various locations. Here, we're going to pull it up. And he says it's not near any airports. It's not true because there are some, like Santa Fe and this one, the Horny Airport is, what is it? Is that really what it is? Oh, the home, the homey airport, not the horny airport. <laughs> Sorry about that. The homey airport, which is a private airport near here. The only thing that he forgot to mention, and I had to dig through this Twitter to find out, is that according to the information released by this account, which follows his, his plane, he was at LAX, or as I like to call it, LAX because that's just what I've always called it. As I've mentioned before, my wife is from Los Angeles. I've visited the city many, many times. I know what it's like to travel in the city, and I know how far away this location is from LAX. This is very far away from LAX. This is probably an hour, maybe more drive away, depending on what time of day it is. Of course, in Los Angeles, it honestly does not matter what time of day it is. It's usually always very busy. I remember driving around with my wife at like two in the morning in Los Angeles and the roads are still like fucking packed. It's still, it's crazy. It's a crazy city. In any case, that's neither here nor there, but there are some holes which are definitely showing up in Elon's story and we'll continue to see what happens as more information comes to light. Moving on, we have a statement from the New York Times, which says the Twitter suspension of Ryan Mack and other journalists is questionable and unfortunate. Tonight's suspension of Twitter journalists and a number of prominent journalists, including the New York Times, Ryan Mack, is questionable and unfortunate. Neither the New York Times nor Ryan have received any information as to why this occurred. We hope that the journalists' accounts are reinstated and that Twitter provides a satisfying explanation. So we also have... So I wanted to bring up this Twitter. This is about, at this point, all the information that I've really been able to find, which is from Alex Heath. He says, read the banning of reporters who have tweeted about Elon Musk's jet. Twitter's head of trust and safety, Allah Irwin, tells me, without commenting on any specific accounts, I can confirm that we will suspend any accounts that violate our private policies and put other users at risk, inferring that what is happening and the reason that they are suspending these accounts is because they have somehow put other people at risk and we are going to now we have this here twitter is now marking all links to mastodon unsafe the link you're trying to share has been identified by twitter and our partners as being potentially spammy or unsafe in accordance with twitter's url policy in case you guys do not know what mastodon is mastodon is a new social network mastodon is a free and open source Software running from a self-hosted social networking services. It has microblogging features similar to the Twitter service, which are offered to a large number of independently run nodes, known as instances, each with its own code of conduct, terms of service, and private policy options and moderation policies. So it's a Twitter variant. Essentially, it sounds like it's a little bit more open source. Very interesting is crowdfunding does not contain any ads. And honestly, I have not heard of this social network until today. And now I am thinking that this may be something worth looking into. That being said, I don't know anything about this social media besides this brief research that I've done here on Wikipedia and the fact that lots of people fleeing Twitter right now are opening up accounts on Macedon and we will go from there. So before I finish off this segment, the one thing I want to say is that, of course, we talked about it in the last episode. And I have problems with the way Twitter did its censorship and moderation and content policies before Elon came into power. And there was a lot to criticize the way Twitter handled itself back then. But if you are you know, those free speech warriors, like you need to look deep into yourself right now and ask yourself, is this really better? Is this really what you want right now? Because say what you want about what Twitter was like before. At least there was an internal debate. At least there was a process. At least people had to actually argue their case amongst their peers. It wasn't one guy just deciding that he was butthurt one day and wanting to ban a bunch of people he didn't like and were critical of him. So let's move into this. I want to read this article from The Onion. This was posted by Elon Musk on March 24th, 2022. 
It says, please like me. It can be strange sometimes to be me. I'm the wealthiest man on the planet, for starters. Leaders across America and indeed the world look to me as a visionary, driving technological progress in areas from transportation to communication to becoming a multi-planetary species. The kinds of projects I'm evolved in would blow most people's minds. To the outside observer, I'm sure it seems like I have it all, and maybe I do. Although I'd like to make one simple request. Please like me. Please, for the love of all that is holy, consider me clever and interesting. Honestly, I don't know why anyone wouldn't like me. I do cool stuff. I make cars. People like cars, don't they? I make stonks go to the moon. Isn't that cool? Isn't making stonks go to the moon something people like? Seriously, come on. Appreciate me. I was on Rick and Morty. Wubba lubba dub dub, right? People love that show. I like to hang out. I microdose acid, a cool drug. Remember when I went on Joe Rogan's podcast and smoked that joint? Who else would be crazy enough to do that but me? God, I'm lonely. <laughs> I, spent, sorry. I spent nine hours on Twitter today. For a few of those hours, I was reading and responding to tweets while on my private jet being whisked from Austin to San Francisco and back again. Picture me, if you will sitting in a comfortable seat on my own plane, zooming through the clouds from one important meeting to another. I should be sipping this cocktail and loving life, right? Instead, I'm growing more and more depressed as I read the hundreds, nay thousands of replies, quote tweets, and subtweets from people insulting me and my projects. Why? Why do people do this to me? Why, why don't you like me? All I want for you is to be nice to me. Please be nice to me. Please be my friend. Won't you be my friend? You can even just pretend to be my friend if you want. Please. Even my children don't seem to like me. Although, to be fair, I'm not sure how many of them there are. One or two of them might like me. If just a few more people like me, maybe I'll feel better. Won't you help me out? Will you like me? Please like me. Do you like crypto? I do. Although, if you don't like crypto, I don't like it either. Anything that will make you like me. Do you want to have a sleepover at my mansion? Pick a time, I'll be there. Please. How about I make you a flamethrower? I'll do whatever you want. Seriously, I'll do anything. I will shitpost. I will call that driver a pedophile again. Jeez. I will pretend to go to space as many times as you want. Please, please, I'm begging you. Please, 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 please. But please. Because, look, frankly, it's not enough to have spent my childhood wanting for nothing due to my father's massive wealth, to have struck it rich off a fairly dull money transfer service idea that I didn't even come up with, to have alienated and betrayed everyone that I've ever worked with, to lie repeatedly that I was the original founder of Tesla, to amass enormous wealth off taxpayer-funded subsidies while insisting that I was self-made, to wield my influence and inane ideas for unworkable projects to prevent actual functional improvements in multiple cities, to receive uncritical adoration from the fawning business and tech presses, to foster a repressive and even a racist workplace in my factories replete with numerous labor violations, all in the name of making cars that don't really fucking work. No, it's not enough. I desperately, desperately need for you to think that I'm cool and funny. I need this. Please give me the satisfaction. I brutally tortured some monkeys for literally no reason, for Christ's sake. That's so cool. Doesn't this count for anything? I'm cool. I'm cool. Please. It's such bullshit. I spent two hours scrolling through Reddit for the perfect, weak-old conservative meme to post, and all the things I get for my dedication to the lols is a bunch of nobodies attacking me. It almost makes me wonder why the hell I continue to subject myself to this. All right. It's that I'm hopelessly in need of your approval. Me, a 50-year-old, now 51-year-old man, with the net worth of a decent-sized country, forced to stoop to bizarre and pathetic stunts for attention. Either that, or cultivating a personal brand of eccentricity generates publicity and financial support that I can then leverage to distract from my essentially fraudulent business endeavors. Yes, it's one of those th two things for sure. Please like me. I need this. I really do. I'm sad. Please. This fucking sucks. There you go. Elon Musk. I think this is a very accurate interpretation of how Elon Musk feels. Obviously, he must be a very thin-skinned individual to go through actions like this. 
And while I, again, myself do not use Twitter, I do feel legitimately sorry for the people who do and the people who have used this platform for a long time and really made it part of their lives. It looks like that's coming to a close, but fortunately there will be other options out there. Twitter is not exactly a, it's not exactly a difficult service to replicate. There are already plenty of functional alternatives out there and it seems like there's going to be more and more. Maybe this will be a good thing. The death of Twitter will maybe help humanity in some way. And I don't know what Elon Musk is going to do. I feel like this is a really, you called down the thunder, now you're going to reap the whirlwind type of moment. He's already having a great deal of difficulty maintaining and securing sponsors on Twitter. This certainly isn't going to help. Journalists made Twitter, unfortunately, in my opinion, <laughs> the journalists made Twitter what it is. And obviously banning them is going to destroy Twitter. I've definitely had my problems with mainstream journalists and mainstream reporting in the past, but that doesn't mean that you can just ban people you don't like with your enormous wealth and power. It's just ridiculous. So I don't know what's going to happen, guys, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring to you everything that we have learned tonight before this video goes live tomorrow. All right, everybody, now it is time to move into our final segment on Verbal Judo. And today what I really want to do is give you guys the kind of tools and phrases and equipment to be able to deflect insults, to deflect people giving you shit, and still come out feeling good, looking good, and still be on top. So as you guys can see, I've got a nice industrial background here. Love industrial footage. It's one of my favorite backgrounds. Please enjoy. In any case, one of the things I do want to stress before we continue is that when you guys are talking with people, particularly people that you care about or you need to have good relationships with, like maybe your boss or someone in an organization or a political organization that's in a higher position than you, basically you always, always, always want to be careful with the words that you use because using the wrong words is going to do more damage than actually physically punching somebody out in many cases because the damage that words do can end up festering longer and hurt more than physical violence saying the wrong words can end your relationship and destroy your life so it's very important to be cognizant of that i know especially coming from me on the show might seem a little bit hypocritical because i do go ham wild and this is a it's for entertainment and b this is also to express my displeasure and anger at certain things that are happening in society that i am not a huge fan of and this is not me trying to form like an intimate serious bond with one person this is me doing a show this is me entertaining you guys and hopefully giving you some information as well this is what you'd call speech a speech format right and treating individual conversations like you're in a speech format or a debate format is probably the worst thing you can actually do because this here, what we're doing right here, is a very artificial way of speaking with people and communicating with people. And let's be real, like this kind of stuff doesn't actually happen when you're talking one-on-one -on -one with someone. This actually reminds me of a Japanese phrase I heard a while back. And sorry, guys, we're going to give you some cringy Japanese here, but it goes something like, when translated, basically it means that words are knives. When you use them incorrectly, they become dangerous weapons. So I think that is definitely something to keep in mind when you're talking to people. I got another Japanese phrase to remind me of what we're talking about. Unfortunately, I don't remember the translation for this one. But basically, it's an old samurai saying, that says that an insult basically is like a man with a spear. When he throws his spear, move your head out of the way, and now the spear is stuck in the wall, and you still have your weapon. And that brings me into our discussion today about deflections and that kind of thing, right? When someone insults you, the last thing you want to do is just keep your head right there when they're throwing a spear at you and let it impale you through the face. You want to move to the side, let the spear go past you, and of course, get stuck in the wall. It's the same thing when you're actually fighting with somebody. You don't want to necessarily push them. You want them to try and attack you and for you to dodge the attack and then counterattack when they're still in close proximity. So the question is, how exactly do you deflect and diffuse 
energy and actual verbal altercations or verbal encounters or even online encounters. And it's something that takes a little bit of practice, but I don't think it's necessarily that hard. There are a lot of phrases that you can use to deflect and de-escalate tensions. And these phrases are definitely easier to pull off when you're actually talking to somebody face to face. They are still possible online, but uh, certainly not as easy. Let's take a debate example or something. Let's say I am debating a conservative on whatever kind of topic you want to talk about. And this is someone who, well, they're not vehemently against me. This is someone who is maybe leans conservative, isn't super conservative, that type of thing. When you're actually talking with these people, the one thing I like to do and when they talk to me is try and find something that I can tell them, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right on this or what you said is a fact or we can agree upon this, but blah, 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 blah. If you're in like a neutral setting and you're in like a not necessarily a hostile environment or as hostile an environment, I always like to come off by starting with whatever kind of common ground the person said and I can start there and then redirect to my own point because not only does that kind of take away some of the punch that they may have been hoping to have in the debate, but it also gives you credibility that you are actually able to go with the flow of conversation. You're able to give credit where credit is due and can give credit when credit comes up. You're not just there to try and smash, 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 smash them into oblivion. We want to be like a palm tree or whatever. We can flow and bend with the wind, but we never break, right? We never break. And when the wind stops, we go right back to where we were. But let's say you're dealing with someone who is very aggressive and very aggressively conservative, very much so in your face, doesn't want to necessarily listen to you, insulting you, saying the worst things. So let's say you got someone who's coming at you and he's like, you socialist Marxist piece of shit, blah, 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 blah. At that point, I always like to very much own who I am, own my political identity, own my political ideology and say, yeah, I am a socialist. Yeah, I am a Marxist. Just because those words are insulting to you, they are compliments to me. And what you do there is effectively take the words they were hoping to insult you with and use them like a shield. If you guys remember back when Game of Thrones used to be good, I think this was in the first season where Tyrion Lannister basically tells he's talking to Jon Snow and they're talking about him being a dwarf and Jon Snow being a bastard and Jon Snow was struggling to deal with all the insults and hate that's coming his way for being a bastard. And then Tyrion basically tells him to do what he did, which is take the label that people gave him of being a dwarf and own it and embrace it and hug it. And then when that happens, effectively what you do is take what used to be an insult and make it your greatest piece of protection. And then when it comes to the more, and then when it comes to the heavier insults that they'll try and throw you something that you, that you aren't, they're calling you something that you aren't. And that, that when it comes down to that, we talked about it yesterday. The last thing you want to do is respond to those, get all hot and bothered by them because essentially you are letting them win. Those kind of insults you basically want to ignore and just like that spear, just move your head out of the way, let it stick in the wall. And then all of a sudden they can't use it against you anymore. So one of the phrases I like to use when it comes to those more heavy, heavier insults to let them slide by is just stuff like, oh, I appreciate that. I understand that. But what we're actually talking about is abortion or what we're actually talking about is tax policy. What we're actually talking about is human rights. And then just using that break to redirect the flow of conversation back towards what you were actually talking about, or what you actually want to talk about. Again, the worst thing you can do is get really hot and bothered and respond to this because this is exactly what they want. And obviously they've now found their solid ground with which they can attack you from. The best thing to do is not give them that solid ground. Make sure that ground is always loose. Make sure it's never quite as firm as they think it is. So at any moment they can slip up, fall through it and fall flat on their faces. So in summary, why did I want to talk about and spend so much time talking about these principles of verbal judo? So let's wrap up our little, uh, conversation about this topic and the main thing is to help you guys deal with insults to deal with criticisms to deal with people who don't agree with you and still be able to engage with them to argue with them and hopefully ultimately persuade them 
because while yes, we can always disengage with conservatives and we can always just go back into our own leftist bubbles and make sure we're talking to people who agree with us, that's not the real world. And unfortunately, that is not going to actually persuade people to our political positions. The only way we're going to be able to get people is by getting out there and arguing for what we believe and doing so in a way that actually brings people over to our side. Because we do on the left, unfortunately, I think, have a bad tendency to say the right things, but in the worst ways possible. Because even when I've talked to conservatives about things that they're sphere has told them to hate something like black lives matter even when you talk about black lives matter with conservatives they will almost always agree with you on the core message which is that black lives matter and that black people shouldn't be subject to indeterminate discrimination and hostility by law enforcement so even when it comes to that ultimately you will find i would say probably 80 percent of conservatives will agree with you and then that 20% is like the very, very, very fringe that are actually honest in saying that they, they basically like that black people suffer more brutality at the hands of the police and that kind of stuff. So there are those people out there. But in absolute fairness, I would say that the overwhelming majority of conservatives are not like those people. But the issue that the conservatives have is that those people on the far right think that they are their people. And they think that they can bring them over and that is the part that I would say, <laughs> conservatives, you got to be really worried about. you got to be watching your back on that kind of stuff. Because once they bring you over, oh man, it is going to be a political nightmare for you. So all that I'm saying here is when it comes to a lot of leftist political causes and a lot of leftist political messages, conservatives at their core actually agree with them. And if we had better ways of phrasing and communicating our ideas and what we believe, our political cause would be a lot further down the road, in my opinion. I mentioned it before that the conservatives are very good at taking a turd and dressing it up in a very beautiful and appealing box and then marketing it to people. So another thing it's important to understand where you can bend, where you can give ground and where you have commonalities but also understand where your boundaries are. We talked very early on in the show about establishing healthy boundaries. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you establishing healthy political boundaries and having deal breaker political issues, which you say that I, I just cannot. This is a all or nothing political issue. You're either for human rights or against human rights type of thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Being flexible when you're arguing and talking with people does not in any way, shape, or form, meaning abandoning your principles or stop fighting for the things that you believe in. And then the last reason I wanted to talk about this is teach you guys how to have some fun and enjoy yourselves when you are talking and debating these kind of political issues, because I know a lot of the times it's a very emotionally exhausting experience. It doesn't always end up being that much fun, but that doesn't mean that it has to be. There are some tools that you can make this easier on yourself and more enjoyable for yourself. So with that, I think we're going to jump into our feel-good story to end the episode. I do want to say, wrapping up this Verbal Judo segment, you guys ever want to have more materials on this stuff? And I've got handouts I can give. I don't know how I can distribute this shit. i got handouts. I would encourage you to read the actual book by George Thompson. And any questions at all, I'm happy to clarify for you guys or anything you want me to expand on. I'm definitely happy to do that as well. So let's talk about a feel-good story that everyone is actually talking about for once. And that, of course, is this big fusion breakthrough that has happened, recently announced by the United States government. Essentially, what they have announced is that for the first time ever, a fusion reaction has created more energy than it took to ignite. So a net positive energy gain this is the first time that this has happened and yes, this is a big deal. So I assume most people probably know about fusion energy, but in case you don't, the very, very brief Cliff Notes version is that the current nuclear energy we have is fission energy, which essentially involves splitting and breaking atoms and creating energy that way. It is, it is effective in creating energy. It's not super safe and it can create a lot of waste and is not ideal. The much more ideal 
version of nuclear energy is fission, which is the process of fusing atoms together, which creates more energy in a safer and more stable manner with less waste. And this is considered the crown jewel of energy, the absolute most important and best type of energy that we humans can actually fathomably accomplish right now with our tech. I have always obviously wanted fusion to be a reality. However, I have remained somewhat skeptical. I have been, or again, I've been hearing fusions around the door for years and years and years and years and years. And obviously here we are still fusionless. But this is the first time I've actually heard of any kind of creating energy, which again, is big news. So we're looking at here at the CBC, the new source of my home and native land. And I, obviously I want fusion to exist. It is not my favorite form of energy, I guess, the most ideal form of energy I would like for us to work for outside of fusion is solar energy. I know people might think, you know, I think I'm an oil van, ladies and gentlemen living here in Alberta, but that is not the case. I'm a solar man. Solar is the people's energy. It shines down on everybody equally. Nobody owns it. Nobody can control it unless you have like some kind of crazy Mr. Burns scenario where they block out the sun. But outside of fission energy, which is the absolute holy grail crown jewel of energy, solar is my number two choice for the way that human beings should be trying to evolve their energy needs in or solar is the direction i believe that humans should be evolving their energy needs into although i have actually heard some interesting wind breakthroughs as well things like vertical turbines turbines stacked on top of each other to take up a lot less space and produce a lot more energy i've even heard of things like personal wind generators that if you have a big enough backyard you can put in your backyard and actually you can't i don't think for most average households, they couldn't really cover your energy needs, but they could certainly assist in taking some of the burden off. In any case, let's read what the scientists have to say. Scientists announced on Tuesday that they have for the first time produced more energy in a fusion reaction than was used to ignite it. A major breakthrough in the decades-long quest to harness the process that powers the sun. Researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California achieved the result, which is called a net energy gain. The U.S. Department of Energy said, Net energy gain has been an elusive goal because fusion happens at such high temperatures and pressures that it is incredibly difficult to control. The breakthrough will pave the way for advancements in national defense and the future of clean power, Energy Secretary Jennifer Grantholm said, and other officials. Ignition allows us to replicate for the first time certain conditions that are found only in stars in the sun, Grantholm said at the news conference in Washington, D.C., the milestone moves us one significant step closer to the possibility of a zero-carbon, abundant fusion energy powering our society. Fusion ignition is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century, Grantholm said, arguing that the breakthrough will go down in the history books. So, obviously, yeah, this is them talking about the impacts that it could have for climate change, but people should still be hedging their bets a little bit because I have been looking at what people have been saying about this breakthrough. Uh, there obviously is a lot of positive energy about it, but a lot of people are still saying like, this is, we're still decades away from real fusion power. But I think hopefully maybe with this kind of stuff, we can, can start thinking about fusion happening in our lifetimes and no longer being science fiction. But I'll just end this little blurb here. Richard Ricardo Benti. Ooh, love that name. Ricardo Binti. Sounds like a p professional rum drinker or something. A professor at the University of Rochester and an expert in laser fusion said there's still a long road ahead before the net energy leads to stable electricity. He likened the breakthrough to when humans first learned that refining oil and gasoline and igniting it could produce an explosion. You still don't have the engine. You still don't have the tires. But he said, you can't say that you have a car. We still have a little bit ways to go. The net energy gain achievement applied to the fusion reaction itself, not the total amount of power that it took to operate the lasers and run the project. Ooh, that's interesting. That is a very, very interesting point to remember. For the fusion to be viable, it will need to produce significantly more energy and for longer. It's incredibly difficult to control the physics of stars. White of the Plasma Science and Fusion Center said, 
the fuel has to be hotter than the center of the sun and the fuel does not want to stay that hot. It wants to leak out and get cold. Containing it is a challenge, she said. The achievement of net energy success isn't a huge surprise from the California lab because the progress it had already made, according to Jeremy Denton, a professor at the Imperial College of London who specializes in plasma physics. But he also said this doesn't take away from the fact that it is a significant milestone. One approach to fusion turns hydrogen into plasma and electrically charged gas, which is then controlled by humongous magnets. This method is being explored in France and a collaboration among 35 countries that is called the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, as well as researchers in Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a private company. Last year, the teams working on those projects on the two continents announced significant advancements in the vital magnets needed for the network. Yeah, I remember reading some of those stories as well. The big thing I remember out of MIT was them harnessing lasers to create energy, and this actually happened to be a much more efficient process for ignition. But obviously, here we are today. So again, it's a big, big deal. But at the same time, we still got a long way to go, and we're not going to be flying around in fusion-powered jetpacks tomorrow but maybe in 15 years, hopefully we will be. And that brings us to the successful conclusion of yet another Chatter in the Skull episode. I want to thank you guys for watching. And a big announcement here is that next week, there probably will be no episode as next Friday, I will be with my parents and my wife and my kid. We're all going to be celebrating Christmas at my parents' house of Providence. So we won't have access to the studio and all that kind of stuff. Might have like a little mini one, may be able to put a little mini one before I go. But next week might be the first week that we actually end up skipping something, but that's okay. It is Christmas. I think most people are going to be doing Christmassy related things anyway, so it probably won't be that big a deal. But regardless, thank you guys for tuning in. And this has been The Comrade, signing off for now, and I'll see you guys next time.